1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 28. And it's printed in your bulletin, and I invite you all to read along with me. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if you're visiting us today, I want to extend a special welcome to you. And, uh, you know, especially if you don't typically go to church or if you're not a believer, a special welcome to you. You know, Easter Sunday is very special to Christians uh, because Easter Sunday, the meaning of Easter Sunday is very central to the message of Christianity. And if I could sum up what Christianity is ultimately about, I would say Christianity is about new things. It's about a new hope, new birth, new life, a new heart, new creation, a new song, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. And I think most people like this idea of new things just for the simple reason that it gives you a sense of hope that things might be better off. You know, some of you know what it's like to start a new job. And when you start a new job, there's just so much hope that maybe things will be different. Maybe things will be better than my previous job. Or some of you know the experience of maybe you start a new relationship and you say, you know, all my relationships in the past didn't work out, and they were so filled with drama and so painful, maybe this new relationship will be better. There's a lot of things in life that we like that are new, and eventually what happens, though, is new becomes old, and when new becomes old, we yearn for something new once again. But as long as I think we're in this new phase, uh, we live very hopefully. We live very hopefully that things will be better. It's, it's kind of like a reset button. Uh, you know, when I was a child, I used to play Nintendo. And on the Nintendo, there's this, uh, there's a power button and there's a reset button. And I would start to play a game. And if the game wasn't going well and if I wasn't doing well and if I made some mistakes, it was very convenient. What I could just do is I just hit the reset button and I start over. And you see, starting something new, starting a new game, hitting that reset button uh, gives us a lot of hope and we can kind of forget the past mistakes that we had. And wouldn't it be wonderful if life was like that? Wouldn't it be wonderful if life itself had a reset button? Easter, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and uh, in a sense, that's God's ultimate evidence that there is a reset button and that he hit it. And I know some people have a hard time believing in the resurrection, maybe from an intellectual level, and maybe think, how can uh, a man, how can Jesus really rise from the dead? Because it's not an everyday occurrence that somebody rises from the dead. But today, I actually want to focus and address maybe the uh, existential struggle to believe in, in the resurrection. In other words, I, I want to focus on many of us here today, I think we 
could uh, intellectually believe that, okay, I could buy that Jesus actually rose from the dead, but maybe the reality of that doesn't make as much of an impact in our lives as it ought to make. Because you see, according to the Bible, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, everything is different. Everything changes. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, it should make some kind of significant impact on every aspect of our lives. It should mean that we have this unshakable hope and that no matter what we experience in this life, that hope cannot be destroyed. It should mean that we go through life with a little bit less anxiety and less anger and less of a sense of despair. It should mean that if you're a believer, serving Jesus is not a huge waste of time, but that there is some meaning in it. It even means that if you serve a cold cup of water to somebody, that simple act of service is charged with great meaning. It should mean that we don't have FOMO and we don't fear missing out on anything in this life because we are not going to miss out on anything in the new heaven and the new earth. But here, here's the reality of it. I, I imagine most of us struggle with these things. I imagine most of us struggle with anxiety. I imagine most of us feel despair. I imagine most of us feel FOMO. Actually, all of us probably feel FOMO um, much of the time. And so here, here's the problem. We, we profess this thing. We profess this thing called the resurrection. We profess this thing called Easter Sunday. But we have a hard time appropriating that truth and making it a reality into our lives and allowing that truth to have this significant impact and this transformative power in our hearts. You know, before the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul, he gives this hypothetical scenario, and he says this, you know, this is, what would, this is what it would mean if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It means this, that our faith is in vain, our preaching is in vain, all of our labor is in vain, the very reason why you're here in church, sitting here, listening to a sermon, is in vain. It means we have no hope, it means we are still in our sins, it means this world is still broken. And it means Christians of all people should be very pitied because you're wasting your lives devoting yourself to something that isn't actually real. That's what Paul says if the resurrection didn't really happen. That's what it would mean. But, but, if Jesus did rise from the dead, everything is different. It does mean that there is hope. It does mean that there is more to life than this life. And it does mean that there is a reset button that God hit, and there's a hope for something better than our life here in this world. I want to direct you to looking at our passage, and uh, if you look at verses 21 to 22, Paul makes this very interesting parallel, and he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And there's this parallel here between Adam and between Jesus. And he says, through Adam, we have sin and death. Through Christ, we have resurrection and life. What does he mean when he makes this parallel? Well, let me try to break it down a little bit. If you're familiar with the Bible, and if you've ever read the beginning of the book of Genesis, there is a story there about how sin entered the world. It's, it's typically called the fall. And in that story, what you're going to notice is that the main characters in that story are Eve, and the serpent. And the dialogue that takes place is between Eve and the serpent. And we don't really know where Adam is until it comes to the point where Eve hands him the fruit to eat. And in that story, Eve is the one who is deceived, and Eve is the one who makes the decision to listen to the serpent and to take the forbidden fruit and to eat it. 
And, you know, I've heard some people refer to that story, and in particular men, and they would say, you know, it was actually the woman, it was actually Eve that was deceived, and, and, and so therefore shouldn't the blame fall on, on Eve and on the woman? And uh, all right, that's a very typical of men, of men right? Uh, let's blame, uh, blame the woman. But you see, when you look at the New Testament, I think what's very fascinating, what's very interesting is Eve's name is hardly mentioned at all, right? The blame, who, who does the blame always fall on? It always falls upon Adam. For example, in Romans 5, Paul writes that it was through Adam's disobedience that sin and death entered into the world. In our passage here, it says that it is through Adam that death came to us and that death became a reality. And you ask yourself, why is Adam the one who gets the blame for sin and death entering into the world? And the reason is this. Adam was supposed to be the representative. Uh, theologians have a term for this, and they call it federal head. Adam was supposed to be the federal head. What does that mean? Well, if you think about what a federation is, a federation means that you are bound to a group and an organization. So therefore, a federal head is somebody who simply represents the interests of an entire group. And Adam was our federal head, and that meant he was supposed to represent the interests of humanity. And the, wor- the reason why the world is so messed up, according to Christianity, the reason why there are things like suffering and sorrow and sin and death in the world is because Adam messed up. And he didn't represent humanity very well as our federal head. He disobeyed God by eating this forbidden fruit. I understand that's not exactly an easy concept for people, especially in our culture, to understand because we tend to be very individualistic. But that's not actually a foreign concept uh, in many spheres of life. You know, we have this kind of relationship in other areas. For example, if you have a labor union, labor unions typically elect somebody to represent uh, the rest of the employees in labor negotiations, and therefore the good of the union is contingent upon whether this elected official or this elected leader is good or bad in their negotiations, if they're good or bad in representing the group. When you have an attorney, what does an attorney do? An attorney represents you. When an attorney makes a motion or when an attorney argues your case, based on the skill of that attorney and how well they can represent you, it affects whether you receive the benefits of that or not. Adam, in in the same way, he is the federal head. He is the representative for humanity. And look, how did he do here? How did he do in the fall? At best, there was a court appearance, and he just sat down and let somebody else do all the work. At worst, he didn't even show up. (laughs) He wasn't even there. Can you imagine that? What if you are called to be the head, the representative, the so-called advocate or attorney, and you don't even show up to the trial? That's Adam. That's why he gets the blame. See, Adam's failure as a federal head, it, it has cosmic consequences because sin, death, murder, corruption, pain, suffering, all other kinds of evils begin to enter into the world. And uh, Adam's fa- failure as a federal head is actually the reason why we are called sinners, even before uh, we, we commit a sin. See, Adam's failure, Adam's identity as a sinner, as disobedient, becomes our identity. We become failure and we share in it. You know, I remember a couple years ago, I was speaking at this college conference, and there was this question and answer time at the end. And someone asked a very good question, and they said, you know, this, this whole uh, Christian idea of sin, I, I don't like it. And here's the reason I don't like it. Why am I being blamed for something that Adam did? 
why why am I being blamed for something somebody did a long time ago? It, it really it just doesn't make sense. I shouldn't be the one who's punished. I'm not the one who ate the fruit. So why am I the one who gets the blame? That's just not fair. And uh, you know, I thought it was a very fair point. And uh, my response to this person was this: I said, you know, I, I get where you're coming from. I see where you're saying what you're saying. It just doesn't seem fair. But here's the thing: if you're going to reject uh, the idea that Adam's sin became your sin, you have to be consistent, and you can't accept the idea that Jesus's obedience and His righteousness becomes your obedience and your righteousness, because that's unfair as well. In other words, if Adam can't be your representative, if Adam can't represent you, then Jesus can't represent you as well. And so you see what Paul is saying here is that Adam was our federal head and he was the one who represented us in the fall. But we have another federal head in Jesus Christ and he represents us as well in life and salvation. But you see, Jesus does a much better job as our federal head. Jesus does a much better job in representing us because he perfectly obeys. He does everything that Adam did not do and could not do. And therefore, we become beneficiaries of that. You see, look at what Paul says here. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This idea of federal headship is actually good news for all of us because even though Adam failed on our behalf, Jesus Christ, he succeeds on our behalf and he serves as our better representative. In Christ, the last Adam, God, he hits this great reset button. When I was younger and playing video games, you know, hitting reset button is pretty easy. You, you just press a button. You just walk to the console, boop, you press the button. But you know, for God, hitting the reset button wasn't so easy for him. Hitting the reset button on creation wasn't so easy because there was a heavy cost to be paid. You see, Jesus as our federal head, he not only serves as a representative, but he does something that a representative would probably never do. He includes himself in the so-called negotiation, and he says this, my life for theirs. My life for their life. What does Adam do? He blames his wife. And in blaming his wife, basically what he's saying is, take her life for mine. <laughs> right? Take her life, spare mine. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, take my life for theirs. That's what the cross is about, friends. That's what this message of the gospel is all about. Jesus goes to the cross. He bears the burden and the weight of our sin. He takes on our brokenness, our pain, our despair as he hangs upon the cross. And as he hangs upon that cursed tree, he submits to this great final enemy called death. And he says, let death take me, but spare them. In this post-Adam world, you know, death it's supposed to be the end of the story for all of us, right? Death is hard. Death is painful because there is just such a there's such a finality to it. And death, death is actually one of the great equalizers in life because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. Death still comes to us all. You could be rich. You could be poor. You could have lived a good life. You could have lived a bad life. Either way, Death still comes. Doesn't discriminate. You know, one such person who uh, died a couple years ago was Steve Jobs. And before he died, he gave this 
commencement speech at Stanford in 2005, and he, he actually talked about death. And here's what he says about death. He says, death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you, right, referring to college students. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. And that's his perspective on death. I think in some ways uh, he's very right about what he says, but I think in other ways he's very wrong about what he says about death. He's right in that death does clear out the old for the new, but I think he's wrong in saying that death is the best invention of life because death is not a good thing. Death is actually a very chaotic enemy, and if you've experienced that, you know that death is not a good thing. If death is like the reset button to make way for new and better things, then we have a problem because we constantly have to hit that reset button over and over and over again. And it's like we are stuck in this constant unending loop and we can't ultimately win this game because we always have to hit that reset button. Death, it's, it's like that math problem that has no solution. And therefore, since we can't find a solution, what we often try to do is we try to think our way around the problem, or we talk about it in, in such a way to minimize the problem. But death is still there. You know, death was supposed to be the end of our story, but it's not. It's not because death was not the end of Jesus' story. You see, in Jesus' story, after he dies upon the cross, something amazing happens three days later in that he would conquer death through his resurrection, that he would rise from the dead. I know this is an old movie, but I, I, I love that scene at the end of The Matrix where uh, Neo, you know, he gets shot and he dies, and then he, he has his own resurrection and he rises from the dead, and you see his heart starts to beat, and then all of a sudden all the agents begin to shoot all these bullets at him, and then he kind of like lifts up his hand, and very calmly he says, no, right, no. I think that's what Jesus does. I think that's what Jesus says in his resurrection. Death comes, he experiences it, he conquers it, he rises, and he lifts up his hand. He says, no. Death, no. Sin, no. Despair, hopelessness, no. You see, in doing so, God hits a different kind of reset button than the one Steve Jobs is talking about. But God hits a reset button that would only need to be reset once. And when he does, there is this new beginning that would not require another new beginning ever again. And this new beginning, there is a new creation where sin and death will no longer reign no more. And just like the passage that we read in the beginning of our worship service, there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more injustice, no more hatred, no more death. And this is the ideal that is promised to us in Christ through faith. You know, in our passage, Paul says Christ is the first fruits. And uh, what does he mean by that? You know, in agriculture, a first fruit is basically an indication of the harvest that is to come. And Jesus uh, being the first fruit, it means that he is an indication of what we can expect, meaning that we can expect a greater harvest to come meaning that there is a harvest of resurrection for all believers who will be raised with Christ that is to come. It means that the ideal has now broken into this painful reality and promises to make this reality ideal once again. 
And scripture calls this the new heaven and the new earth. It calls it the new city. It calls it the new Jerusalem. And if it is true that Jesus was raised from the dead, then it means, friends, that there is resurrection life for us all. And that is a promise. What does that say about death then? Well, at the end of this chapter, which is not printed here, but Paul says something to death in in a way that is almost taunting. Uh, He's kind of mocking death. He says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, some of us read that, and if we've experienced the pain of death of a loved one, I think we say, what are you talking about, Paul? The the sting hurts. Uh, I've experienced it, and I don't like it. I've experienced it, and it has hurt me to the deepest core of who I am. How can you say, oh, death, where is your sting? I don't think Paul is saying that the sting of death doesn't hurt, because it does. And we can't be in denial of that. The sting of death truly does hurt. But I think what he's saying is this. The resurrection makes it a different kind of sting. It's a sting that may hurt, but it is not a sting that will be the end of us. You know, It's like the difference between the sting of a bee and the sting from a gunshot wound. Both, both are going to hurt, but... One will hurt, and the other one will be the end of us. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, it doesn't mean that the sting of death won't hurt. But it does mean that the sting of death is of a different quality and of a different nature. If there is no resurrection, then it means that the sting of death will be the end of us, that death is itself a gunshot wound. But if there is a resurrection, that it means that that the sting of death, though it will hurt in comparison to what is promised to us in Christ, is more like a bee sting, and it will not be the end of us. If there is no resurrection, our future will come to a hopeless end. But if there is a resurrection, friends, then our future is going to be filled with endless hope. And it truly makes all the difference. So how should, how should life be different if Jesus really did rise from the dead? You know, I think some of us, we live with this mentality. This is the only life we've got, and therefore we need to make the best out of this life. But you see, according to the Bible's vision, this life is actually incredibly subpar compared to the life that will be given to us in the resurrection. This life is going to be filled with a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of frustration. In fact, that's exactly what God says after sin enters the world. He says, you know, guess what? Work, it's going to be hard and it's going to be frustrating. And when you go to work tomorrow, you say, thank you, Adam, right? Because work is hard and frustrating. God says, childbearing, super painful. You can thank Adam for that, mothers. God said, there is going to be so much pain and sorrow because death has entered into this world. You see, this life is not supposed to be the best one that we've got because this life is a life of decay. And we are all decaying along with the rest of creation. And even so, we are often trying to hold on to this decaying life and say that this is the best life that we're ever going to have and so therefore I need to maximize it and I need to save it for myself. And we look to this life to be our means of ultimate pleasure, our greatest security, the way in which we form our most fundamental identity. But this life will never compare to the life that is promised us in the age to come. So we got to stop living this life as if this is the only life we've got. Because according to scripture, it's not. And only then, when you realize that, will you be able to hold this life a little bit more loosely. 
so that you can really give yourself to the Lord, so that you can really give of yourself to your neighbor and pour your life out for others. It's hard to do that when you think this is the only life you've got and you've got to maximize it. Let me end by, uh, by saying this. You know, back to Nintendo. You know why I'm talking about Nintendo so much? I, I saw on Amazon that uh, they're selling the old Nintendo console, so it just brought back memories. But, uh, you know, when I was younger, you know, I used to play this game called Contra. And uh, if you've played it, maybe you know what it is, but it's kind of like the shooting game. I think it came out in, like, 1988, which means that it's been almost 30 years since it came out. And I, I forget the details of this game, but I think when you start off this game, you, you basically have five lives, which is the, the equivalent of having five chances to beat the game. And, uh, you know, if you get hit with a bullet or something, you die, you lose a chance. And therefore, because you only had these five lives and it was a very long game, each life really mattered. And uh, you, you didn't have many chances to beat the game. So uh, if you wanted to beat the game, you really had to make each of those lives count. But, you know, one day I learned this cheat code and uh, I still know the cheat code. And I talked to many other people. For some reason, it's just a cheat code that stuck with uh, many people. But you do this cheat code at the beginning of the game, and all of a sudden, now you have 30 lives. And you know what happens with 30 lives? Your mentality of how you play the game changes completely. Uh, you feel more confident. You feel more secure. Uh, you, you think that you are going to beat the game because you have enough lives to beat the game. Uh, you even feel like you can take more risks. You dwell less on the mistakes that you made because you know you have 30 lives and... You can beat the game. Now, that's not exactly a great, uh, perfect illustration to illustrate the resurrection, but uh, I hope you see the connection I'm trying to make. You know, if the resurrection is, is real, uh, it doesn't mean we have 30 lives. It actually means we have eternity, and that's far greater than 30 lives. It actually means that at the end of the game, uh, we get to win. We get to be victorious. And if that is true, friends... It gives us a lot of freedom in this life, does it not? You know, some of us, I know, we're a little bit uh, anxious. We just are, just as a culture, we're more anxious. And therefore, you know, we think about our past and we think about the mistakes that we've made and we think about our regrets and we kind of hone in on that. We say, oh, I wish I didn't do that or I wish I didn't make that decision. My life would be so much different now. Or for some of us, it's the opposite, and we look to the future, and we want to plan every single detail, and we say, I have to plan this out perfectly, or else uh, I won't maximize this life, and I won't be happy in this life. And that's a really great burden to have, and that's, that's a pretty stressful burden to have. But if the resurrection is real, that's not a burden you have to carry anymore, friends. That your mistakes, God will reset them in the new creation. Your regrets, you won't have any because God promised you something far greater than what you've missed out on and lost in this life. Easter is a celebration of a new beginning. And yet, despite who you are, despite what you've done, despite mistakes that you've made in the past, God calls all of us today to embrace this message of the resurrection, to be united to Christ through faith, to share in his resurrection so that we can live life with greater hope and greater security. Because the resurrection promises new beginning. Let's pray together.